The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I've been giving a series of talks on karma, and uh, if you haven't heard, I've been using this book by Ajahn Sumedho as a basis for a lot of the talks in 2007, just following along through the book. And this is uh, based, uh, this, this chapter is called Karma and Rebirth. And I've already spoken about karma for the last two weeks, and tonight I want to focus on the idea of rebirth from a Buddhist perspective, what that means, how it's useful as a practice. Now, how does it fit into practice, this idea of rebirth? And it's important to remember that all of the teachings are useful in terms of practice, or they're not useful at all. I mean, it doesn't really do any human being any good to have something to believe in if it doesn't change their lives. So there's a set of beliefs or practices are useful to the extent that they change our lives, that they transform the heart. Otherwise, it just gets it just is something that we sort of protect and uh, argue with other people who have different views or different beliefs. So the concept of karma really addresses the question, how? Like, how did this moment come to be the way that it is? Or how will the next moment arise? How, how does a moment arise, a particular quality of a moment arise? How is it that we have a moment of a lot of, a, a lot of suffering or a moment where there's a lot of joy and happiness? And so I've been talking about, you know, it's really the basis for living a good life is just to understand how things arise conditionally, causally, and how in this moment we participate in that conditional unfolding. That it isn't a strict deterministic model, which we can, you know, have nothing to do about, but there is a uh, sort of a conditional unfolding but part of this conditional unfolding is how the heart, mind, relates in this moment. That's our present moment input. So when we have a conventional view, which is, you know, I'm here trying to live a good life. This is sort of our conventional view. So we see things from our self, sense of self. This is Mark who wants to be a good person and have a good life. And then on this level, karma means, the, the principle of karma means that what I intentionally think, say, and do has consequences. If I, uh, if I relate or act based on a lot of self-centered greed, then there will be unwholesome consequences. I'll suffer. If I relate with a lot of space in my mind, a lot of um, quality of generosity or simplicity or clarity or generosity, um, kindness, then I'll set in motion happiness. But in a deeper perspective, and this is going to relate to this, uh, the idea of rebirth, from a deeper perspective, it's true that how I relate has a real effect on how things unfold. 
But it's also good to start to reflect on, well, who is it that's relating to this present moment? Like when I relate with greed, who is it that's relating with greed? Or when I relate with kindness, well, who is it that's relating with kindness? That that person that, you know, conventionally speaking, we call it Mark or a person, that person is also a conditional phenomenon. So in the Vasudhimaga uh, commentary on the Buddhist teachings written in the 3rd century CE, um, it's, kind of, it's one of the basic manuals in Theravada Buddhism. Let's see if I can have my glasses here. Buddha Gosa, who is the author of that manual, says, No doer does she see behind the deeds, no recipient apart from the karmic fruit. And with full insight, she clearly understands that the wise ones are using, are using merely conventional terms when, with regard to the taking place of any action, they speak of a doer, or when they speak of a receiver of the karma results at their arising. Therefore, the ancient masters have said, no doer of the deeds is found, no one who ever reaps their fruit. Empty phenomena roll on. This view alone is right and true. And while the deeds and the results roll on based on conditions all, there no beginning can be seen, just as it is with seed and tree. So read those verses again. No doer of the deeds is found. No one who ever reaps their fruit. Empty phenomena roll on. This view alone is right and true. And while the deeds and their results roll on based on conditions all, there no beginning can be seen, just as it is with seed and tree. So clearly... Uh, there are, you know, there are moments of happiness and there's moments of suffering. But when we look, is there a somebody suffering or somebody who's happy? And uh, it's really a question of uh, answering the question, well, who receives? Like, if we understand that intentional actions have consequences, well, who receives the consequences of the intentional actions? Who is that that receives it? And it's really beginning to like open our minds. And I think this is the important thing, is not to believe this, but just to open our minds to what it means to be a conditioned being. Because we are conditioned beings. There's an interesting section in this book where Ajahn Sumedho is just talking about you know, human beings as, you know, just conditional creatures, conditioned creatures, just acting out our our craving, our desire. Let's see if I can find that section. You can see rebirth directly. You don't have to believe in a theory of rebirth. Rebirth is something that occurs in what you are doing all the time. Now, since there is no self, there is nothing to be reborn as a personal essence or soul, 
carrying through from one lifetime to the next. However, desire is being desire is being reborn. It is constantly looking for something to absorb into, something to become. In fact, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, one of the early Tibetan teachers to come to the United States, someone asked him once, what gets reborn? And he said something like, your neuroses get reborn, or your unfinished business. So I'll just keep reading here, because <clears throat> he's talking now about understanding rebirth, not having to wait until you die, and then you see what rebirth is all about. But right now we can see about rebirth, moment by moment. So he says, if you are unhappy and depressed, you look for something that you can absorb into that will give you some happy feeling, or at least get you away from the unpleasantness of the moment. That's rebirth. When you are frightened or uncertain, you have to try to do something to get away from it, to make yourself sure and safe. When you are bored, you have to do something to get out of that. Just notice in your own life how you have come to become, how you have become accustomed to certain habits. For example, when you go home at night, you go to the refrigerator and get something to eat. You're reborn as you absorb into the pleasures of eating. Now, when you've had enough of this birth, you've had three ham sandwiches, four McDonald's hamburgers, and two pizzas. You can't stand to be reborn into another pizza. Then you seek new birth in the television set. Because you are so bored, you want to find some other place to be reborn again. So you get reborn into things that are going on in, on in the television set. When the romantic scenes are going on in the film, you feel that you are absorbed in the romance itself. You're feeling the joy of the kiss. When he deserts her for someone else, you're feeling the pain and sorrow, the anger, the resentment. Then you get satiated. Weary of television, you read a book, when you can only be interested in that for a while before you become bored again. So you turned on your stereo, which has speakers all around the room, and you blast yourself for a while. And then you have a drink with a cigarette, and then you call a friend on the telephone. You look into the mirror for a while, but soon you are bored again. You just can't stand the idea of being born again. And so you say to yourself, I, do, I just want to not exist. You don't actually think this is, you don't actually think this, it's just a habit. So you go to your room and crash out on the bed and annihilate yourself with sleep. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so every time um, that we're not content or at peace with things as they are, we want things to be different. This is that basic energy that in Buddhism we call becoming. We want to become something. And then at certain times we get exhausted wanting to become, and then we want to annihilate ourselves, either through some sort of drugs or sleep. But we want to sort of not have to be a desiring being, being anymore. We want, to, we want that to end. So we seek annihilation in some way. So this is rebirth. Every time I take up another... Uh, form or strand of becoming, it's in a sense I'm taking rebirth. It's like now I've been starting to think about um, my car got rear-ended a couple years ago, so I had to get rid of it. And Wynn and I have been living with one car, and it's, it's getting to be, for me at least, a little bit of a struggle. So I've been thinking, okay, it's, it's time to take rebirth as a car owner again. <laughs> 
you know, and, and just that whole sort of, it, you know, you part, part of my reality then is the person who's looking for a car or the person who's solving a problem or the person who feels overwhelmed or the person who feels loved and supported or the person who doesn't feel loved and supported. So just think about even today how many times we've been reborn into some mind state, some situation that we've gotten absorbed into for a while until we got reborn into something else. And then he goes on a little later. Now he's talking about this point that I was bringing up. Who is it that's reborn? Who is it that receives the consequences of karma, of our actions? He says, we can watch this rebirth process in our own minds. What is it that goes from the refrigerator to the television set? Is that a person? Is that what your soul is, your true essence, that is going to be carried on through eternity? Or is it desire? Isn't it just an aimless wandering habitual and a habitual search for something to do, something to absorb into? You can watch desire in your own mind. When you are frightened, you can see yourself looking for something certain. When you don't know what to do, you can feel the momentum of desire looking for that, for any old thing of interest. You start picking up things, twiddling your thumbs, just to be doing something. This constant activity of just, is just the force of habit, isn't it? You don't really know what you're doing most of the time. You just do these things out of habit. We like to get absorbed into things that have glamour and excitement, so we go to war films to be excited. When we see a newspaper headline about atrocity, rape, or murder, we think we've got to read that. Violence and sex, all these things are exciting. Excitement is very compelling. It has a, a frantic vibration. It's easy to absorb into something exciting because excitement has its own kind of energy. You can be energized through the exciting conditions around you. Yet when you look at excitement, you see that it keeps you in a state of constant movement. And then he goes on to talk about too much of that, and then you want annihilation. Finally, he says, these rebirths based on desire are the ones you can witness through meditation. When you see them, you understand what rebirth is. And so this is, in Buddhism, this is how we start to talk about what might be happening at the time of death. Now, I'm not speaking from experience, but just from logic and reflection, just from understanding kind of my own life, we can see how um, uh, a mind moment, this mind moment, for example, it conditions our next mind moment. So if you have a lot of boredom, it just, that boredom here in this moment conditions how the mind is, the heart is in the next moment. Like where does the particular mood in this moment come from? Well, it's just been conditioned by the previous moment. And so, think about the last moment of this physical life. What, you know, assuming we're conscious, what is likely to be in that last moment or there in those last few moments of life, what is uh, likely to be in the mind? the desire for continued existence. 
makes sense, right? It's like, I don't want to lose this body. I want to continue to exist. I'm afraid of, you know, whatever non-existence would mean. I want a new body. That's in the mind. Now, the body gets born, grows up, gets old, dies. I mean, if we're lucky, we go through that whole process. So the body is actually, if we live a full life, is actually starting to fall apart. But is the force of becoming in the mind, this force of desire in the mind, does that get weak as we get older? That, that, that's, that force is still a force. You know, it's a force when we're teenagers, it's a force when we're 40, it's a force when we die. So that mind moment of wanting continued existence is the cause for the next mind moment. And in Buddhism, the idea is that that mind stream... <clears throat> see, the mind isn't even a thing. This is the, the main principle of Buddhism. It's the most subtle. It's the hardest to understand. So don't force yourself to try to figure it out. But I'll just say it in words. You know, the, the basic uh, insight in Buddhism that we develop our mindfulness practice in order to see this over and over again in deeper and deeper ways is that everything's conditional, including our mind. It's just a conditional unfolding. That there isn't a center to this thing I call Mark Nunberg, this mind stream or this body mind stream, right, this happening. There's not an essence center to it, a fixed center. Who is that Mark that we can point to? It's just this unfolding Condition. A lot like weather is an unfolding condition. Is there a center to this beautiful spring day? Does it exist somewhere? But it's clearly a beautiful spring day, right? But where's the center of it? We don't, we don't feel the need to impose a center on the spring day or the woods. But we do feel like this phenomena needs a center. And we've created a center by the use of language and concepts. We haven't, you know, most of us have a very definitive idea of self as a center. But when we actually observe the experience of self, we see it's a process. It's a conditional process. One moment leading to the next. And how does this moment turn out to be the way that it is? That's this principle of karma. Well, this moment is this way because it was conditioned by everything previous. And so this arises conditioned on what's come before. And how we are in this moment, how we relate in this moment, is one of the conditions for how things will be in the next moment. So Arjun Sumedho says, if you understand rebirth on the everyday level, you appreciate how it must operate at the time of death. The last wish of a person, if they're heedless and full of desire, is probably to be reborn again, to find another human birth, to find some womb to jump into. This desire operates as an energy in the universe. The desire for rebirth at the time of death is a desire to be reborn again in the human form. We can only know this through watching how our own minds work. If you were dying and you didn't want to die, that would be the most likely thing to arise in your mind. It would be a desire to cling to some form of life, some passion of your life 
would arise in your dying moment, and that desire would be the would be for some form of materialization. And then he goes on, he says, but if you're mindful when you die, if there's no longing to have another birth or to take some action, what is there to be reborn again? If you're at peace with the dying process of your body, what can be reborn? Because there is no desire, there is only mindfulness and wisdom. Then there is release, surrender, and liberation from the heaviness of the human body. So this gives you a, a, an idea of not just even at birth, but even right now, like even though we still have a body and uh, we still have responsibilities, you know, a life of relations and jobs and things like that. <clears throat> If we can be here with this body and our responsibilities and our relationships without attachment, without identification, then <clears throat> although because uh, the conditional unfolding is still unfolding, you know, this mind and body is still unfolding because of the momentum of this physical existence, and the momentum of this mind, it's still unfolding. But because of the uh, freedom from attachment and identification, the unfolding isn't heavy. It's the attachment that gives weight to our existence. It's the attachment or identification that provides the force in the desires. So at the time of death, if there's no desire present, no attachment present, then there's no force for continuation of this mind-body or this mind. But, see, that seems scary to us. Like, well, God, I don't want my mind to stop existing. But here we're talking about the neurotic mind, the mind that sees things from a self-centered perspective. That's the only thing that will cease. And because that's all we know, because we're mostly deluded, that's scary. Right? It's like, what else is there? So the whole point in practice, you know, spiritual life, is discover what else is there so we're not afraid to let that ego self, self-centered self, fall away through not feeding it with identification and attachment. occurred to me, you know, it's like one way we can see the force of this habit of, of becoming is like every single night or, uh, you know, even even just throughout the day, you know, we might have moments of, of uh, basically where that, uh, the continuity of our mind is stopped. The most obvious time, of course, is deep sleep. Right. So, in a in a sense, and I don't I don't know if this is true, but it's, it seems to be my experience that in deep sleep, that part of the mind that's identifying with desire of wanting to become or uh, wanting things to be to end, that that stops during deep sleep. So, and it's not very long. You know, it's 
minutes, but it's not very long. But after we come out, even before we wake up, so we're just in the dream state, then the desire, because of its momentum, it just continues again, doesn't it? And then when we get up, we basically get back into the same stream. It just keeps continuing. So I think this is the thing we want to start observing in our daily life is, is just the force of our habit to want to become, how ceaseless that is. There's no end to what we want to become. We want to become a little cooler if you're having a hot flash right now, or we want to become a little warmer, we want it quieter, we want the pain in the body to go away. We want the anxiety about getting older to go away. So it's always, we always want something. And this force is really the result of karma. The result of karma, remember, just means action, intentional action. So the, the intentional action that we've repeated so many times is the identification. That basic movement of the mind to identify or get attached is a very potent karmic act meaning it's an action that has consequences. And the basic consequence of that identification and attachment over the years, or lifetimes, who knows, is that there is all this momentum. That's the consequence. That it's a really deeply cut groove. So the tendency of the mind is to keep returning to that way, that mode of being, which is to want to become something. So even when the mind gets quiet, like uh, you know, when we sit and we're just with the breath, that part of the mind quiets down because as we become more fully mindful of the breath, we're just there with the physical sensations of the breath or with sound or with the body sensations, then there's not a lot of attachment identification, maybe some moments with very little or none at all. And then we'll see, though, we'll get distracted and we'll just see it's like being reborn into our fantasy or being reborn at the end of the sit back into all of our hopes and dreams and all of our fears. So we can just see how this pattern, this tendency gets reborn over and over again. There's this great little book that was written a while ago uh, and it was Sri Lankan monk, Apola Rahula, What the Buddha Taught. And it's been reprinted many, many times. It's really a great book. And he really wrote it for Westerners. I forget why he left Sri Lanka, but he lived in Europe for a while, and I think even in the United States. People kept asking him questions about what Buddhism was. So he wrote this booklet. And one of the chapters is on karma and rebirth. I'll just read a little bit here. The theory of karma should not be confused with so-called moral justice or reward and punishment. The idea of moral justice or reward and punishment arises out of the conception of a supreme being, a God who sits in judgment, who is the lawgiver who decides what is right and wrong. The term justice is ambiguous and dangerous, and in its name, more harm than good is done to humanity. The theory of karma is the theory of cause and effect, of action and reaction. It is a natural law, which has nothing to do with the idea of justice or reward and punishment. 
Every volitional action produces its effects or results. If a good action produces good effects and a bad action bad effects, it is not justice or reward or punishment meted out by anybody or any power sitting in judgment on your action, but this is in virtue of its own nature, its own law. This is not different. This is not difficult to understand. But what is difficult is that according to the karma theory, the effects of volition, of volitional action, may continue to manifest themselves even in a life after death. And so this is this is something that we want to again not believe in, but we want to just open our mind to. That well, maybe this is true. And it helps helps us to understand uh, that vast, that longer perspective. Really helps us to understand, like the force of the, the things that we feel. Like we don't understand. Well, where did this all come from? Well, we can have a sense that well, there's a lot we don't remember. That's driving this mind. That's driving this existence. And it's true when we see the forces around us, the forces in our society, the forces in our friends. And we can just get a sense that there's a, that there's this possibility that things have come from before this life. And it's also very useful to keep this in mind in terms of taking responsibility for our actions, our thoughts, our words now. Because we might feel like somehow we'll get away from it in this life. But if we really see that this uh, force of the mind isn't going to end at death, at the physical death of the body, that the mind isn't dying, the mind isn't weak at the time of death, all the desires, do we have fewer desires at the time of death? Not necessarily. So whatever we've set in motion in the mind, it's like that's just not going to end when the body ends. We can just hold that open. So we want to take responsibility for really taking care of the mind. Even when we're 85, you know, and we think it doesn't matter because I'm just going to die, well, then, you know, we could justify all kinds of actions. But if we understand that this mind, whatever is set in motion in this mind, has consequences, well, then we'll t try to take responsibility for it, take care of it, to purify the mind. says a little later in this chapter on karma. When this physical body is no more capable of functioning, energies do not die with it, but continue to take some other shape or form, which we call another life. In a child, all the physical, mental, and intellectual faculties are tender and weak, but they have within them the potentiality of producing a full-grown man. Physical and mental energies which, which constitute the so-called being have within themselves the power to take a new form and grow and gradually and grow gradually and gather force to the full. And then at the end he says, as long as there as long as there is this thirst to be and to become, 
the cycle of continuity goes on. It can only stop when its driving force, this thirst, or sometimes it's translated as craving, is cut through with wisdom. So one of the questions we want to ask is, well, what is it that... uh, what is it that makes it seem like, um, you know, if we think about things as a process, one nice image that's used is, like if you look at a candle flame that's burning all night, and you can ask yourself, well, is this the same candle, and you look at it at 6 in the morning, that was burning last night? And the, and the answer is sort of, well, I mean, I should say, is the flame the same flame that was burning the night before? So how, would, how do you answer that question? So a candle's been burning all night long, and somebody asks you, your you know, four-year-old kid asks you, Mom or Dad, is that the same flame that was burning last night? Well, it kind of is, and it kind of isn't, right? Or another image is like you take, you have a line of candles. You take the flame, take this flame, and you light that candle, and you take that candle, and you light the next candle, and just before that candle's out, you light the next candle, and just before that candle's out, you light the next candle, and then, you know, many candles later, is it the same flame, or is it a different flame? So, there's something that's confusing us, that's deluding us, and it's this continuity. We get confused by continuity, or memory. Memory is confusing. Like when you think about something that happened when you were a teenager, you might just want to bring that to mind now. Just think about something, you know, a long time ago. And now, I know we all know that that happened a long time ago. But doesn't it seem like that past event that we're remembering, doesn't it seem like it has some real existence? Like that exists somewhere, that past exists somewhere. But does that past exist anywhere? It really doesn't at all. It has absolutely no existence. There is a memory which is happening right here and now, in the present moment. But there isn't a past anywhere. But doesn't it feel a lot like there is a past somewhere? So we get a sense of the the deluding quality of memory and of continuity because we understand you know with that memory we understand uh, rightfully so I think that there's some relationship between the memory that we have right now and our life there's some relationship there's there is a connection <coughs> but it's not we're not really first of all that, that doesn't exist anywhere and we're and, and besides we're not that person anyway anymore We're not that 16-year-old. It's a different creature, a different being now. So if we, the more we understand that even in this current existence, the limitations of, you know, who we were, who we are, then it begins, it's easier to open our mind to how it might happen at the time of death or even moment by moment. 
sometimes when the mind is really concentrated, it can it it, it in a, in our experience it arises that even though our experience isn't changing dramatically, like we're just sitting here at common ground, and the next moment we're still sitting here at common ground, but there can be a, a, a very distinct perception that this moment is a different universe, a different reality than that previous moment. Even though we also can recognize that the way the body, the sensations are in the body now are a lot like they were a moment ago. And what's being seen and heard and smelt is a lot like it was a moment ago. But there can also be a perception that it's a different reality. It's not. It's not continuity. See, if we just reflect on this logically, how do you get from one moment to the next moment? Do we just sort of like slide or morph into the next moment? Or does this moment have to completely cease in order for this moment to be the next moment? Do you see what I'm saying, just logically? So in Buddhism, generally, what we talk about is this moment arises and it ceases. And the next moment can't come until this moment ceases. And it really ends. But as this moment arises and ceases, it's conditioning the next moment that arises and ceases. And it's that continuity that confuses us. So we, it makes it relatively easy for us to impute that there's a somebody that continues. There's a center to this continuity. Mark, me, I, mine. Right? But the more we look, the more we see the discontinuity. And this is really important in mindfulness practice. We want to begin to start to see the discontinuity. And what is it that prevents us from seeing the discontinuity? Well, what, what is it that, what is the only thing that could possibly keep us from experiencing the discontinuity? Our thoughts. Our thoughts that there's continuity, that Mark is continuing. It's the same Mark. That's a story. We have a story, a very compelling story about continuity, about there is a, an essential Mark who has been moving through this life. And as long as that story is maintained, it actually prevents the clear seeing, the mindfulness, from actually seeing life in its uh, fragility, which is the moment arises, it blooms, and then it ceases. And then the next moment blooms and ceases. And everything is very fragile and uh, mysterious in this way of being, uh, this way of being very sensitive and uh, um, present. The more we see how this life is, the more we can appreciate how a being might move from one life to the next life to the next life. Because this existence itself is dying and being reborn all the time. So it's not such a stretch that, you know, the physical body ends and the mind takes rebirth. The mind stream, the momentum of desire, of becoming, just takes rebirth over and over again.
Buddha said, when the aggregates arise, decay and die, O practitioners, every moment you are born, decay and die. The aggregates just means, it's just a way of the Buddha would talk. The Buddha talked about the mind and body. So when the mind and body arises, decay and die, O practitioner, every moment you are born, decay and die. That's just the experience of being a human being. So you can just start noticing this in very ordinary ways, like the day has ceased, right? You look out and the sun, the sunlight, it's gone. And now it's night, and night will last for a while, and then daylight will come. And just to think, like, not only has the afternoon completely disappeared, ended, nowhere to be found, but even 6 o'clock has ended, and 7 o'clock is, 8 o'clock has ended. In fact, 8.46 has ended. Where is 8.46? My clock says 8.47. Where is 8.46? It has ceased to exist. It doesn't exist anywhere. Where is 848? It doesn't yet exist. But pretty soon, 848 will just arise out of nowhere, conditioned by what everything that's come before. And for 849 to come in, 848 has to completely cease. This way of reflecting on our life and learning to be mindful, it really inspires a quality of awe, like we really want to be here, because uh, first of all, we realize how little we know and how much we've been sort of imposing a reality, um, a conceptual reality on our experience, and how caught we are in what we've been projecting. And it creates a lot of problems. Like once we have a sense of continuity of self, then we're really afraid. We get attached to that sense of continuity of self, and then we're really afraid of discontinuity, of the ending, of whatever, something that never was there to begin with. There never was that sort of continuity of self. But because we so strongly believe in it, then we do all kinds of neurotic things including creating suffering for each other as a way of not just protecting this the sort of sense of physical self, but the sense of my ideas and opinions, my psychological self, you know, and arguing and fighting, controlling around those things. So I want to leave it here so that we have some time to discuss any questions that you might have. Obviously, we could spend a long time talking about this. And we'll get to it a little bit later. We'll come up again when we talk about dependent origination. But anyway, we have about 10 minutes if anybody has any comments or questions. Brent? Uh, I have to comment on, on your topic of talking very synchronistic with uh, some personal revelation that had over the last few weeks in reading Rudolf Steiner and had that book of the yeah, I was going to read actually a section from that book, the Tibetan book of living and dying. I didn't get to it, but there's some. Uh, he covers some of this material in there too. Other thoughts people have or questions? Mm -hmm. Emil? Um, I guess I'm uh, 
our experience on its face value, but we're, we're applying the mind in a particular way. We're training the mind to see clearly. That's the, that's the transforming element on this path, is we are just taking, we are trusting our experience, but at the same time, we're developing the power of the mind to see things clearly. And so that's what changes that. So at first, we, what we see very clearly is the stream of our thought and, and basically we see what we're telling ourselves, what the mind is telling itself. And so that internal dialogue. So we just see that. But eventually the clarity, the mindfulness is clear enough that we see, oh, that's just a thought. That's just a thought. That's, that's not the truth. It's just a thought in the mind. That's a big breakthrough. When we start to have moments where in, in just a moment, the mind recognizes that a thought is just a thought. Then we've, we've taken a big step towards seeing things more clearly. Other thoughts, Adam? Well, I had a, a couple of thoughts. One, um, again, it seems like I can see kind of, for myself, experience both, both um, I think two views, one where we impose the continuity, but another that the discontinuity is also kind of imposed. Like, like for instance, um, like the way we make constellations out of pretty um, like ambivalent, just the stars in the sky, and we mm -hmm. that. And if we make a story, a mythical like constellation out of that. Mm -hmm. Most like people need to be kind of trained to even do that to show that people have done that. Um, but then once you see it, you see it and things. And I think if, if we can do that, then I mean, at what level are we doing it to our day-to-day -day experience of stuff that isn't and bit, like just kind of neutral information, stuff that seems to matter in front of us. I mean, what kind of constellations are we projecting onto that? And yeah. It seems like they'd be, I mean... I mean, very significant, but at the same time, the things like what time it is and whether it's winter and whether it's, I mean, cooler today than certain, I mean, winter days might have been on a weird winter day where it becomes, I mean, a lot of that seems like it's our words, too, and we're projecting that, like, like the idea of, I mean, that pretty, like, the, the sunlight's still out there, if it's not... We don't see what we call the sun, except mm -hmm. it's still light outside. It's not, I mean, it isn't the day to go anywhere in a big sense unless we learn those words, right? I guess things like, like, I don't know, it just seems like at one level it's all, I mean, it all meshes together, and on the other level I can also experience that, I 
Right. I, I, let me see if I can sum up what I hear you saying, because I think it's an important point, which is, the, the, again, the, my first statement I said tonight is, remember, these teachings are for reflection. They're not absolute truth. So I think what you're saying is, discontinuity isn't an absolute truth. And you're absolutely right. It's not an absolute truth. So, but because our delusion is based on continuity, the spiritual medicine is seeing the discontinuity. But from a point, from an enlightened point of view, it's neither continuous nor discontinuous. Neither of those are relevant from a mind that isn't fixating. Right. Does that kind of get what you? Yeah, the, the delusion. It's delusional when we see continuity within the separateness that we're projecting. You know, kind of like our, like the idea of self is the idea of me is separate. I see that continuing. That's it. Like a kind of an error. That, that when I see um, like continuity among candle flame that's made up of oxygen and wax and I mean what's a flame? Like it's just that. And there is, I think it's almost more. It, it, I feel more spacious when I don't when I do see when I don't see the defined terms in a way. Yeah. At yeah. some level. Yeah. Some level I see, I'm far more spacious when I. Well, all the metaphors, all the similes are just sort of, they're just that, you know, they're not, they're not truth in themselves. And I think that's the important thing, is that we use words, you know, the teachings, we use them to loosen our thoughts, to loosen up our concepts and the, what we're fixed on. But then the, 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 you don't want to hold on to them because they don't hold up as anything themselves either. That's what I noticed about you talking all of it felt like yeah, yeah, yeah. But as soon as I really looked, I get well, wait, oh no. Yeah, yeah. It's weird because it felt. Yeah, which is, and what that's useful, the reason that's such a useful comment, Adam, is that it's just a good reminder that grasping at the teachings is just suffering. You know, like to try to hold on to them. They're just, it's just like something to, I don't play with, it maybe it's too light a way, but just to use uh, skillfully, artfully, but not to get too attached to them and to sort of build a temple for them. Like, oh, this is the truth. Finally, I got the truth. Finally, Mark said the way it is, you know. And then that's just guaranteed suffering. <laughs> Other thoughts people have? We have a couple minutes left. I'm Jerry. Jerry. And, uh, I was wondering if continuity uh, is a result of the karma. Well, the, the lack of clarity, the lack of sort of clear seeing is like anything else. It arises conditionally. So the fact that we are confused by memory, the capacity of the mind to, to have memory, is <coughs> arises because it's been conditioned by previous moments. So it's the lack of clarity conditions this moment. So there's lack of clarity here. So what's the proximate cause for mindfulness? A moment of mindfulness. If you want to be mindful in the next moment, be mindful in this moment, because that will condition the next moment. It's a little chicken and eggish, you know. It's like, but that's uh, that's our inspiration to be mindful because it sets mindfulness in motion. 
and why we want to be vigilant about uh, not being clear because it sets and it may be relatively safe to not be clear at some times in our lives but who knows the next moment it would be like really important to be clear but if we've been setting in motion a lot of uh, dullness or a lot of not being clear and then all of a sudden we have a moment where it would be really nice to have a clear mind but it's already been conditioned to be not clear so uh, yeah does that kind of get at what you were saying Okay, yes or no? <laughs> Other thoughts people have before we end? David? The talk you were saying, the desire for, you know, to become. Mm-hmm. And is that, I'm thinking two things. One is, I, I think back to uh, where it's such a In the Eastern thought, and definitely in Buddhism, it's it's not that the mind arises from the biology, but it's that the body arises from the mind. So when you study dependent origination, the sort of primary thing is ignorance. The ignorance means not seeing things clearly. That creates karmic formation. So there's sort of the mind is impressed. It has a um, it's been affected by the not seeing clearly, and that, that sort of impresses itself on the mind, and that's the cause for consciousness and for the mind and body to form. So the very nature of the physical being sort of reflects what's more subtle, which is the mind. Now, normally in the West, having been uh, trained in the religion of science, we think of biology being primary and the brain then the, the biological brain being the cause for the mind to arise. And so it would make, make sense what you said, which is that this physical entity has this sort of survival drive, and then it makes sense that the mind would reflect that. But So it's not really different. It's just like what's primary and what's secondary. And so if the mind is the primary force for this, on, this tendency for, to continue on, then we want to address it on that level, on the level of the mind. We want to actually look at what that force is. And, you know, and what we call it in Buddhism is the force of grasping or craving. And we want to look at it. And then we want to, as we look at it, that already is transforming. Because the power of craving to continue on relies on not seeing it clearly. That's why ignorance is the sort of primary cause. It's the not seeing the craving that supports samsara, the continuity of suffering, the cycling of suffering. And so uh, so then the, the ultimate spiritual medicine is to develop a mind that can see craving um, clearly without being confused by it. 
just see it as a force, not as something personal, but just see it uh, not through the lens of this is my craving, but just see craving as a natural, conditional force in the mind or here. And, uh, and then things start to change when we see it in that more direct way. You know, and I'm sure this has happened to almost everybody in the room where uh, not a lot of our craving, of course, we don't see in this way. But every once in a while, we do see craving with some clarity, and it loses its punch. It's like all of a sudden, we, we were being driven by it, and then all of a sudden we see it, and then it loses its punch. It's like we're not driven by it anymore. We all of a sudden don't need to eat that next bowl of ice cream, or we don't need to do this or to do that, because we real, realize that it's just craving. It's just, and it really uh, takes the punch or the energy out of it, the force out of it, because it relies, the force really relies on the process of identification and attachment. And that is the opposite of clear seeing. You can't have both the identification and clear seeing at the same time, because it undermines it. It has to be real quick, because we're already a couple minutes over. Well, what I meant to, I, I might have used that word becoming a couple different ways, I don't know. But uh, the way technically it's used is the first way you described it, as the force of craving. Uh, craving, it's the craving, the identification with desire that leads to becoming. So when we get identified to desire, then we want to become. Why don't we leave it here, just take a few seconds and let go of the words, especially tonight. Uh, as Adam sort of suggested.